I want to ask you again, like I did two weeks ago when we were here, how much of you does God have? How much of you? Not how much of God do you have, as if God is holding something back. He's not holding anything back. Like All of God is available to all, each and every one of us. But how much of you, of your life, does God really have? Is there more of you that he could have? And if he had more of you, like what difference would that make to your life? If you were more surrendered and connected in with him. Uh, last time I talked about this bold, provocative, pride-shattering phrase, these words that Jesus speaks in John 15, 5, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain joined to me and I to you, you will bear a lot of fruit. And here it is, you can't do anything without me. You can't do anything without me. Is that the reality of the way we're living our lives? We were created, Jesus makes it clear, to live a fruitful and fulfilled life. A fruitful and fulfilled life. And Jesus makes it unequivocally clear that the only way to live the fruitful and fulfilled life that you were created for is to be rooted and connected in him to be rooted and connected in him. And so last time, uh, we started to look at this story in Exodus 33, and I'm going to go back there again. So if you've got a Bible, open it up or, um, or turn it on, Exodus 33. And we, we talked about how the God-rooted life is a life that chooses what I described as the glorious inconvenience of getting away with God. Do you remember that? Does anyone remember that? The glorious inconvenience of getting away with God. And and what I was talking about is this is about someone like Moses in this story who was regularly and willingly committed to go out of his way to be convenienced, to allow God to get in the way of his life in order that he could experience the glorious presence of God and all that would come with that. The glorious inconvenience of getting away with God. And we practically talked about, therefore, building daily, weekly, monthly, annual spiritual habits and practices where we get out of the way to be with God and remain rooted with Him. Uh, Well, this morning, back in Exodus 33, I want to talk about a different glorious inconvenience. I want to talk about the glorious inconvenience of going along with God. There's the glorious inconvenience of getting along with God, but the glorious inconvenience of going along with God. If this uh, book of Exodus is new to you, it's the second book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It tells the story of a man called Moses, who was called by God when he was 80 years old to leave the comfort of his Midian desert and go to Egypt and demand to Pharaoh that hundreds of thousands of Israelites needed to be set free from 400 years of their Egyptian slavery. And God was going to bring them to a promised land, a land of hope for them. And all of that happens. And and in this journey that these people make to the promised land, God supernaturally and wonderfully provides for them every single day. He gives them food. He gives them water. Their clothes don't wear out. He provides for them. And yet, despite his amazing grace, his goodness, his generosity, they are constantly veering away from him into self-dependence. 
They, they want a life of comfort and convenience, and they're, therefore they're repeatedly rebelling, constantly complaining, and incessantly idolizing everything but the God who has rescued them. And so when you get to the beginning of Exodus 33, you see this little conversation that God and Moses had, and it, and it basically plays out like this. Moses, God says to Moses, okay, Moses, I made a promise to bring these people into a promised land, rescue them from slavery, bring them into a better place. And I'm going to keep my promise because God always keeps his promises, people. He always keeps his promises. He says, I'm going to keep my promise. But actually, now I'm going to send an angel to go with them. I'm not going with them anymore. These people are driving me nuts. And God literally kind of says, if, if I spend any more time in a room with these people, I am going to wipe them out. Literally, it's what he says. And in a, in a rare moment of repentance, when the people hear this and, and they get the sense that God isn't going to go with them, they come to their senses and, 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 and they're like, this isn't good, we, we, we don't want this. And... And they start to turn around. They start to shift. Now, you might be thinking, hold on, like this that doesn't seem like a very kind thing of God to say. Like, but why would God say that? And sometimes we find God in Scripture saying tough stuff. And the reason that he says the tough stuff, as we see, because it seems like he changes his mind, but he doesn't. But what's really going on is he's trying to draw out a response from them. He's, he's, he's trying to figure out, if I tell you I'm not going with you, are you going to be bothered? Do you care? Do you want, is what you really want the promised land or do you want the God of the promise? Do you, do you want the presence of God, i.e. God's presence with you, or do you want the presence of God in terms of the gifts that God gives you? And as long as you've got the nice stuff going on, as long as everything's kind of playing out well and God's answering your prayers, then you don't need him because you, you've got what he does for you. It kind of makes Jesus not saviour, but Santa. We've got our list of things and he has to deliver on them. What do you want? Moses, as we see over and again in this story, he is committed to the presence of God, the, the presence of God with him. And he's embraced, as we already discovered last time, the glorious inconvenience of going, getting away with God. And today we see that he's embracing and choosing the glorious inconvenience of going along with God. This life that is rooted, God-centered. And I, I would say if we look at this, this, some of the text in Exodus 33, we see what this looks like. What does this life look like? Because Jesus is longing for you to be fruitful and to be fulfilled and to be overcome, even in the valleys like we've sung, that you can be in a difficult place and still be in a place where you're saying, it is well with my soul, that you can be in that place. But it demands something of us. And the first thing we see in Moses is it's rooted in dependence. It's rooted in dependence. Look at Exodus 33, verse 15 to 19. Uh, Moses responds to this threat. And Moses said, this is verse 15. Moses says to God, God, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us. Like we don't want to go if you're not going with us. 
Like this whole thing of like, God, we don't want to step into our day. We don't want to step into our destiny unless we know that you are with us. We don't want to rely on our experience. We don't want to rely on our wisdom. We don't want to rely on our history. We don't want to rely on our strength. We don't want to even rely on other people. If you are not with us this day, in this moment, as we take a step, we don't want to go. But I wonder how many of us have that level of dependence upon God. We don't want to go along by ourselves. We only want to go along with you. Like, Why, why aren't we like that? And I, I'd suggest that consciously and subconsciously, it's because we are overconfident. Like subconsciously we're overconfident because, because the reason we, we, we don't have this sense of going along with God all the time is because we think that maybe God is going to suggest some things to us and we think we know better. And so because we think we know better, then we're quite happy to go along by ourselves because we actually don't want God to inconvenience us. But I think it's more a challenge subconsciously that we just forget. We just don't embrace that prayer practice that every day we have this surrender moment on our knees where we're like, God, unless you are with me today, I just can't do it. I can't do it. There's a tragic example of this in, in the book of Judges. There's, this happens hundreds of years later. And there's a guy called Samson. And Samson is chosen by God to become a leader and a judge in, in Israel. And, and throughout his life, he's called out to be a Nazarite in a particular holy, righteous relationship with God, although he blows it a lot of the time. And he's given supernatural strength. And in Judges chapter 16, if you look later, he falls for a honey trap. There's this lady, Delilah, who he's genuinely fallen in love with, but she doesn't love him. She's been set up by the Philistines, which is the prevailing enemy at the time, to try and capture him because he keeps killing them. And they're not very happy about it. And if you look in Judges 16, there's all, all this. She's trying to find what the secret to his strength is. And in the end, he tells her something he shouldn't say. And she ties him up. He falls asleep. And then she calls out to the Philistine army, and they're coming to arrest him. And then we get, I think, two of the saddest sentences in the whole of the Bible. This is Judges 16, verse 20. First of all, this is Samson. Samson says, I will go out, and I'll shake off these ropes, as I've done every time. Like, I, I've, I've got myself out of a fix before. I'm going to get myself out of a fix again. I've beaten up these guys before. I'm going to do it again. Like, I've got track record. I've got history. I know how to do this. Pride. And then a little verse that follows it says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Like Samson says, I've got this, I've got this. And, and do you know what? Like God will always cooperate with your choices. Did you know that? God's judgment on you and I is life on your terms. God will always give you what you want. If you want him... You've got him. If you don't want him, he'll step back. You do life by yourself. See how that goes for you. And it ends up in tragedy, tragedy for Samson because he's got no strength. And they arrest him. They gouge out his eyes and they imprison him. Although he has a final glorious finish. You'll have to read the story. 
And I remember years ago reading that story, and particularly as a preacher, I've been preaching for 37 years. I was 15 years old when I first preached, and, and I remember reading this and, and just loving preaching. And sometimes when I speak in other places, sometimes I might uh, share another message or a training that I've done. And, and for years and years and years, rooted in this scripture, I've come to God, and I've had to say to God, God, I will not arise as at other times. Like I might have preached this message before. I may have preached a thousand times, but this moment is new. This moment that we have together is new. And if God, by His Spirit, isn't in control, if He is not at work, if I'm not surrendered to Him, if I've got confidence in myself rather than Him, then this at best is entertainment. It's nothing. But, but if I, I come up and share with you or in other places, and if I have this resolve saying, God, I might have done it before, but I need you right now to fill me afresh. I am utterly, utterly dependent on you. Now, this is not about preaching. This is about life. This is about your leadership role. This is about your fathering, your parenting. This is about how you connect with your neighbours. This is about your job. This is about if you are a bricklayer or whatever it is, that yes, you've got gifts, skills and abilities, but even in that, the Jesus-rooted life is a life that says, I am dependent on you, that starts its day in that posture. We're not going anywhere without you, God. We're not going anywhere without you. The glorious inconvenience of going along with God is rooted in dependence. What does that look like for you to, to start your day in a genuine, fresh way of saying, God, unless you go with me today, I'm going to be in trouble. I need you. But then secondly, it's revealed in a distinct life. It's rooted, it's rooted uh, as I said, in, um, oh, brain's gone. It's rooted in dependence and it's revealed in distinctiveness. Because look at the next verse, verse 16. Because then Moses says, How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with us as a people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And I love this about Moses. Moses is basically saying, God, not only do we want to be dependent on you, we want everyone to know that we're dependent on you. We want it to be absolutely obvious that we are your people, that we carry your presence, that there is something distinct about us, that we shine in the culture, that we have the flavours of the kingdom, that we're yeast in the dough, that wherever we go we're bringing impact and influence because we carry your power, because we carry your presence in the workplace, in the street, in the neighbourhood, in the gym, in the coffee shop, in the cinema, in our home, in the church, wherever we go, we expect the atmosphere of those spaces and places to change because we carry your presence. That when we step into a room, people are like, what has happened in this room? And it isn't us, but we're carrying the presence of Jesus. And because we carry the presence of Jesus, atmospheres change, situations change, circumstances change. We carry his distinctive. I, I love those verses in, in Acts chapter 3. The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament, and after we get the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we get the story of the early church, Jesus' first followers exploding the good news of Jesus across the world. And in Acts chapter 4, 
these, these two guys, Peter, James, Peter and John, who were one of, uh, two of Jesus' first disciples, um, they, they heal a guy. They invoke the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 3. And a guy who's been lame, who's been crippled since birth, 40 years, is, is healed instantly. And, um, and guess what? Lots of people are happy. Religious leaders aren't happy. But religious people are annoying, aren't they? They really are, let's face it. And so they're brought in front of these religious leaders. And, um, and, they, and these religious leaders just don't know what to make of them. But, but here, this is how they describe them, these religious leaders. Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. And they were astonished. And they took note that they had been with Jesus. They took note they'd been with Jesus. You know what, what they're saying here? And by the way, this, this word... Um, ordinary, okay, it's the Greek word idiotes. What does that sound like? That's right. They looked at Peter and John and they thought, these guys are idiots. But there is a power and a presence that they are carrying that makes no sense. They're dunderheads. They're not educated. They're fishermen. They've blown themselves out of the education system. There's something going on. What is it? What is it? Ah! It's Jesus. We remember. They sound like Jesus. They look like Jesus. They, they're doing what Jesus does. Because they're, they're, that's what it means to be a disciple apprentice. You just do what Jesus does. You say what he says. You be what he is. You go where he goes. There is something distinct about them. Because that what, that's what happens when someone's carrying the presence of God. Rooted in him. I remember uh, back in 2010, we did our first house building trip in Tijuana, Mexico. We took 25 of our young people and we joined 150 all together in Tijuana. And uh, we were building a house by day. And in the evening, in this uh, big marquee with rusty metal chairs and a very loud generator in the back, we were doing kind of uh, little church youth meetings. And... um, and I was overseeing the spiritual program for the 10 nights. And on the third night, on the Sunday night, there was a Mexican pastor called Pastor Juan. And he was going to speak. And he didn't speak any English at all, so he was going to be interpreted. And so he said, how long shall I speak for? And I said, we'll speak for um, like 20 minutes, should be fine. And he was like, okay, but remember, all interpreted. And so we had a really good worship time. And Pastor Juan, he, he gets up to speak and he opens his Bible. Now, listen, by this time, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of my life speaking to young people. Okay. And by the way, this is pride speaking, just to say. And I know how to talk to young people. I, yeah, exactly. Help me, Harry. I, you know, I, yeah, story. I mean, you know, you've been doing it, Nick. Like, you know, this, you know the little hooks and stuff. You've got to draw them in, draw them in. Noticing that young people in the room are just completely disengaged at the moment. But just go. But, you know, I, and anyway, he gets up. He reads a little verse from the Bible. He's being interpreted. And, uh, and I'm listening. I'm literally sitting at the side saying, this is not good. This is not, this is not good. Oh, just, oh, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. Like, it's not, good. it's not a good preach. I don't know if he's making sense. Not, I mean, his interpretation making sense. Anyway, he finishes. He only does about 10 minutes. And he finishes. And then he says, oh, everyone bow their heads and eyes closed. And I, you know, and I, oh, I know what's going to happen next. And so then he says, like, if there's anyone here who wants to give your life to Jesus, just put your hand up. Put your hand up. And I'm man of faith. <laughs> no one is going to put their hand up to that. And then I hear him say, those of you with your hands up, would you please now stand? 
And now I heard the rustle of chairs. And then he said, with those of you now standing, come to the front and we will pray for you to introduce you to Jesus. And 25 young people came to the front, including five of our own young people. But here's the thing, here's the thing. But honest, I felt the Holy Spirit said to me, oh Matt, oh you thought it was your preaching. You thought it was your preaching and your great communication, your storytelling that draws people to me. It's nothing to do with you. You're just a donkey that I'm using to speak through. Because God speaks through donkeys. Separate story in the Old Testament. Now, of course, we need to use our gifts to the best of our ability. But if, but if we think it's about that, if we think it's, it's not utterly and completely about his presence and his power on Pastor Juan, who clearly had a rooted and dependent life and clearly wasn't saying, God, I've got to be the breast preacher. But no, he was like, I've got to be surrendered. I've got to see the power of God at work in me. And because of that, 25 young people came to faith. The following year, the following year, we're back. It's Sunday night. And I'm saying, Pastor Juan, come preach, come preach, come preach. Because I know he carries the presence of God. And he, says, and he says to me, I will preach, but this time it will be different. He said, what I'm going to do before I preach, he said, some of my young people, they're going to do a little drama sketch. I was like, okay, great. Sounds fantastic. So, he's, so, so this is how it went. It was awful. This is how it went. And so we got this group. Of young, now, they've got a rap track, which is in Spanish. And they're holding it against uh, the microphone to play this rap. And then they're doing this drama along to this rap, which is playing through these tin speakers. And the drama is basically these two boys. But they're all about 13. They, um, they're, they're clearly in a gang, a bad gang in the drama. And then one of them in the drama comes to Jesus and gets saved, which is great. And then they are killed in a drive-by shooting in the drama. And they're both, they're both lying down there. And then, obviously, their kind of resurrected bodies, uh, they come alive again. And one of them, clearly in the drama, goes to be with God. And there's a hugging and embracing. I thought, this is great. And then the other, then these other young people come out. They're obviously like demons or something. And, and this, this boy's like this. And they're just like beating him and beating him and beating him. And th there was a minute left of the track. So we had like 150 people watching this kid being beaten with invisible sticks saying like, this is what will happen to you if you don't say yes to Jesus. I was like, oh, it's not great. Pastor Juan gets up and I thought, well, at least Pastor Juan's going to come preach now. And then Pastor Juan, literally, this is absolutely true. He goes, and so... If there's anyone here who wants to give your life to Jesus Christ, everyone's eyes open. I'm going to invite you to come to the front now. Turn around, face us, so we will pray for you. And 20 young people got out of their seats and gave their life to Jesus. It's not about the vessel, it's about the gods. The God who can work through everything, even things we might think about theology, all that kind of stuff, like God can work through anyone who is surrendered to him. Draw anyone to himself. It's a, it is revealed in a distinct life. We want to be distinct. And then finally, as, oh, uh, and just, and finally in this, as, as we think about this distinctive thing, um, what, I, what I love about this is, is that God loves Moses' response. God loves it. And so the story begins with God saying, I'm not going to go with you. And then Moses says, we're not going to go unless you go with us. Rooted independence. 
And we want everyone to know, by the way we live in our lives, that you are with us, revealed in distinctiveness. And God says, verse 17, I'm going to do the very thing that you've asked. I'm really pleased with you and know you by name. That's cool, isn't it? It's like God saying, good answer, Moses. Good answer. And I know you. And so we'll do this. But if you look at the story, what happens next? I'm nearly done, not quite. Moses isn't finished. He has another question. And so look at verse 18. He says to God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. It's like Moses is, is saying, this, this word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. It means significance, weightiness, um, awesomeness, incredibleness. And so it's like Moses is saying to God, okay, God, if you are going to go with us, and if we're going to carry your glorious presence, what's that going to look like? What's that going to look like? I want to know what it looks like if I'm going to be a carrier of God's presence. And God's answer to this, as you're about to see, is flipping amazing. Because think of all the things God could have said. I'll show you my holiness. I will show you my truth. Look at verse 19. God said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God says, Moses, you want to carry my presence? Then my goodness is going to flow in you and through you to wherever you go. This, this, this whole sentence in verse 19, it's conveying in the original Hebrew language like the incomprehensible kindness of God. God's incomprehensible kindness to you, to all that you meet. It conveys the undeserved favor of God. We don't deserve his goodness, but yeah, he's good to us anyway. The immeasurable generosity of God, the unfathomable compassion of God for you and I. That, that when we choose this life of going along with God then what we encounter is his goodness, his kindness, his generosity, his mercy, his favor, his compassion, all the things we need to travel through life. If you are committed and you know today, like I know today, I need to be rooted in him. I actually believe that what Jesus said is true. Without me, Matt, you can do nothing. But with me, anything is possible. If you would be rooted in dependence, I can't even start this day, Lord, without you. Everything I'm going to do, I need with you. Revealed in distinctiveness. I want your presence to, to be obvious that there's a difference. And that distinctiveness is God's goodness working through us. But then the last, the last point to close is it is a readiness to be disrupted. A readiness to be disrupted. Because you can't get the first two without the third thing. Because if you're living a life where you are committed 
to just be following and flowing with God, then you've got to be willing at any point in time for your priorities to be hijacked by heaven's priorities. The things that feel they really matter to you, the list of things to do, or even the way you want to live your life, and you feel you want to do this, and you sense the Spirit saying this, and you go through this because that, my friends, is the inconvenience. But you don't get the glory of his goodness without the inconvenience of being disrupted. The inconvenience of joining in with what God is doing. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain joined to me and I to you, you'll bear a lot of fruit. You can't do anything without me. How much of you does God have? How much of you? Dependent, distinct, disrupted. Because I promise you that if you and I can grow in this dependence, flourish in this distinctiveness, be willing to be uh, disrupted, you will find yourself on the greatest adventure you have ever known. Don't live your life too small, but embrace the crazy adventure that God's got for you. See what he will do. Amen? Amen. Amen.